Welcome to The Wealth Intersection with Megan Gorman. In this program, you'll hear fascinating stories from science, technology, finance, and the arts. Learn how dynamic individuals created their paths to success and the wealth intersections that occurred. It's where you might just find the answers on how you can pursue your passion while creating the necessary foundation to build personal wealth. And now, here is Megan Gorman. Hello and welcome to The Wealth Intersection. I'm Megan Gorman and I'm your host. Today I'm really excited because we have Craig Hatkoff today with us. And Craig is very well known as an entrepreneur, as a real estate investor, as a founder, and, and primarily as a disruptor in a number of different spaces. So today we're going to be speaking with him about his journey from upstate New York to being the founder, one of the founders of the Tribeca Film Festival, to working with children in children's books. Um, so, Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you here. It's an exciting time. I love October in New York. Um, and, you know, in learning about you, one of the biggest things that struck me is you're always an early adopter and you're always a disruptor. So tell me, what were you like as a kid? <laughs> uh, I guess I'll say... I was born this way, um, and I think a, a, to a large extent, I, I didn't really learn the term disruption, disruptive, disruptor until right around 2000 when I met the father of disruptive innovation theory, uh, Harvard professor Clayton Christensen. But in what's now going on almost a 20-year relationship with Clay, um, I realized a lot of what was in me, the DNA, was really coming from my father. Yeah, because he was a disruptor, right? He actually was a disruptor. (laughs) Uh, You know, as an example, you know, it's funny, never let the facts get in the way of a good story, which in today's world, I guess the answer is never let the facts just get in the way of anything. Yes, true. Uh, But what I I discovered is my father was one of these amazing do-it-yourselfers. Okay. And part of disruption tends to come out of this whole do-it-yourself movement is what I'm going to refer to it as. Okay. But... He would rather we have a boiler that didn't work for 20 years that I would have to go down and every every other day relight the pilot light, and we would kind of use rubber bands and glue and band-aids to keep it together, uh, and that was just, and it wasn't really about the money. It was just, you know, it's, it, it's the world, it, and it's an interesting dynamic today. We used to live in a world of scarcity. Yes. And this was the analog world. Today we live in a world of abundance, which when the world becomes digital, and one of the other most influential events or inflection points is I read, I think it was it must have been around 1990, uh, Nicholas Negroponte's Being Digital. Mm-hmm. And what it really basically said, and a light went off, was anything that is made of atoms and matter will ultimately, if it can be, be converted into digital manifestations. Got it. And so what that means is we no longer need, it's not a world of atoms, it's a world of bits. Okay. And when you're in a world of bits, there's no marginal cost. Everything is free or almost free. Got it. And that is a wildly mind-blowing epiphany. It is. So I had that around 1990. But I guess back to the original question, we were always doing things our own way. My father uh, never let convention get in the way of anything. <laughs> um, he was a man, a very simple man. He had one luxury, and it's kind of a funny story. Okay. I don't know if we have what time. was his luxury? Uh, 
he, <laughs> we had not only one Cadillac, we had two Cadillacs. Okay. And one was the family Cadillac, <laughs> and the other was the business Cadillac. <laughs> and the business Cadillac hauled a trailer, a hitch-on trailer, where we were, I grew up in the toy business, and I'll yeah. come back and yeah. talk about that in a, in a minute, but you'd go past our, dri- our driveway, and there'd be one Cadillac that looks normal, and then there's this other Cadillac with a trailer hitched up that says Duane's Toyland. <laughs> <laughs> My mother was completely and totally mortified. I'm sure, yeah. Worried about what, the, what do the neighbors think, what is it? And my father couldn't care less. He, and this he, was how he operated. He said, I don't need a truck. It's another person on the payroll. I'm the second store at the time. We had two stores on the way home. I'll move the, the merchandise back and forth. And it's a funny story. We had, uh, I guess I can, yeah, it's public information. <laughs> um, we had General Motors as a client, a sponsor, partner, back in, oh gosh, I can't even remember, must have been somewhere around 2004, 2005, and they wanted to have stories. The sponsor of the Tribeca, 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 yes, the Film Festival. The Film Festival, and and the brand was Cadillac. Yeah. And for whatever, you know, for Bob De Niro to do a, you know, what might be perceived as a commercial, you know, that doesn't really happen so right. easily. Right. Uh, my my wife was not uh, you know wasn't really a Cadillac person didn't really have much to say, and I said, you know I have this kind of funny Cadillac story. Right. About and my so dad. I, we actually made a I guess you could call it a commercial. My you know it was my Cadillac stories, and it's the story of you know my father's only luxury in life were his Cadillacs. It, yeah, and that was his. And that was his. And thing. did he just did he always have two? Not well. No, I think we used to have. What we used, you, I don't even know if people in today's world remember what a station wagon is. Yeah, of course. I'm but, a child of the '70s. We okay, loved so station, we wagons. station wagons. Yeah. So we had these. You know, they, they weren't even automatic transmission. It was right. a station wagon that was standard transmission, and uh, we used that for a long time. But as we grew, the the uh, station wagon wasn't particularly well adapted to pull to haul a trailer. Right. Right. And of course, we made the trailer ourselves. <laughs> So, uh, actually, there's some funny, yeah, probably have some funny pictures somewhere out there on the internet. Um, But that's sort of, you know, so everything was, don't be constrained by convention. Don't worry about what other people are thinking. Right. And, you know, I guess that's where the, you know, the DNA was. And what I just kind of always suspected but never really found anything out there that I wasn't, you know, that I wasn't uh, specifically looking for was I came across an article that Duane's Toyland, yep. which was started the same year I was born, 1954, was considered the birth of big box retailing. Okay. Probably 15, good 10, 15 years before big box became okay. in. For, and for listeners who don't know what big box is, it's all the, you know, Staples is big box, Toys R Us was, was big, big, yes. big box, and it was a 40, you know, 20 to 40,000 feet, not, a, you know, a 3,000 square foot store. Um, and so some local business journalist historian <laughs> said the birth of, you know, and he used to go to Duane's Toilet, he said this is the birth of big box retailing in, you know, basically in 1954. Wow. So. Now, but your dad had a discount toy store. Yes. So he was a disruptor. Yes. Early on. And it's funny because even in the work that you've done with Clay, yep. I've seen that, that you use the discount toy retailer as an example of a disruptor yes, in, the, in that industry. 
Yes, and uh, my brother-in-law is a, uh, a a pretty well-known venture capitalist, Alan Patrickoff, yep. who's considered the you know the eminent grease of the venture capital industry. Yes. Uh, still more active and more energy than any twenty-three-year-old I've met. <laughs> Um, but he was very close friends with Charles Lazarus, and Charles Lazarus, who was the founder and uh, you know the, the vision behind uh, Toys R Us, knew everything about my father's store because we were a thorn in his side. And uh, so the discounting, which you know, interesting, I think uh, in Clay's book, they I think they used the EJ Corvettes model as one of the early discounters. But my father read an article in Reader's Digest, circa. 1953, 1954, about this new concept of discounting. Okay. And just sort of said, well, I'm going to do it for toys. So this is a good 20 years before Toys R Us. But uh, uh, we, I always thought Ch Charles Lazarus would just come buy us out <laughs> just because we're such a pain. Right, right. Um, and he kept saying to Alan, you know, I want to tell your father to, to throw him, but he is really bugging me. <laughs> so... <laughs> Hey, that's what your father was after, probably. <laughs> was, I think that, that it was literally what was keeping him going. But but here's the interesting thing is you were going to stay in your father's business, right? Yes. So you you were probably going to continue the disruption and discount toys, but you made well, sort of a turn because of your brother-in-law. My brother-in-law actually said, listen, let me explain to you. You know, you've grown up in Albany. You've grown up in upstate New York. Come to New York You'll spend a couple of years here, and then if you want to go back to Albany, but at least you'll know what the you know the big yeah. world is looking like. Right. So it's a little bit uh, you know from rural upstate New York, relatively right. speaking, right. to Columbia Business School. After uh, I guess I graduated from Colgate in '76, yeah. yeah. graduated from Columbia in '78, with no no other work experience in between, which was very unusual even back then. Oh really? Other, what, what did you do in the summers? Did you work? With I, I worked. Dad? You know, the, my business experience was Dwayne's Toilet. Okay. And on the one hand, it doesn't particularly well prepare you for business school, at least as it was. Okay. You know, those back then it was you wanted to go to commercial banks, but more importantly, Goldman Sachs or okay. Bain or McKinsey. And I didn't know what on earth I was going to do, but I had begun, I think, my business school experience, and my brother-in-law was right, was maybe before I go back to Albany, okay. I'll, uh, you know, I'll take, check out New York for the next the next segment. Right. And I stayed and ended up going into the uh, banking business at the old chemical bank. Yeah, I remember chemical bank. And it, it didn't go well in the beginning. It didn't go well in the beginning. <laughs> uh, or at least... I discovered it didn't go well at the beginning. I right. thought it was going fine, except my <laughs> boss didn't think it was going so fine. Uh, but I started a chemical in 1978. Okay. And that was a very interesting time because by October, actually almost the 40th anniversary to the day, I guess today is the 23rd? Yes, today's So October 23rd, October 19th, 1979, was I think it was either I think it was Black Monday or Black Thursday. I can't remember which day, but I do remember. I think it was Black Thursday because the eighties was Black Monday. Yeah, so I remember the eighties was Black Monday. Yeah, and the reason I remember October nineteenth is it was my mother's birthday. Ah, okay. So I remember calling her and said, "Mom, happy birthday!" Something really weird's going on here in the market today and I remember I think it was 538 points if yeah. I remember yeah which back then was shocking today uh, well, yeah, that happens well, in a day when, and when we don't the, even blink yeah 538 points when the denominator is 2,000 right. is really different than <laughs> when it's 27,000 exactly so uh, so anyway I, I was uh, my I guess I would call it my 
risk antenna mm -hmm. has always been focused on this sort of endless ebb and flow of financial crises. Mm -hmm. You know, I use once again going back to don't let the facts get in the way. Right. right. Uh, my stick my finger in the air, every 4.2 years, we have another financial crisis. Right. We're a little bit overdue. Well, and by the way, in looking at your sort of resume, what I found very interesting is every time we're in a crisis, you launch something new. Yeah. That's sort of your, your sweet spot. And I got that to a certain extent from my father, mm -hmm. uh, to a certain extent just having read about Warren Buffett, Mm -hmm. uh, when others are greedy, be fearful. Right. When others are fearful, be greedy. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this notion, and another one came later in my life was a fellow by the name of Sam Zell, okay. the Chicago billionaire uh, who's also known as the Grave Dancer. <laughs> and so I had a lot of mentors growing up. And I think mm -hmm. that was part of what was so interesting. Uh, and it's not so much of... I want to be like them, mm -hmm. it's more, what can I learn from them? Because right. I wasn't sure I really wanted to be like any of them, Right. Um, but boy, did I learn a lot. Can I, I want to understand exactly how you got to, to where you're going um, in terms of simply, you know, you're at Chemical Bank, you're not doing well there, and you write a memo. Yes. Okay. And this memo sort of propels you. Yes. Because you look at something very differently than anyone else. Yeah, so you wrote a memo that sort of changed things. It sort of disrupted, in, 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 in a way, an industry that didn't look at it that way before. Correct. So what did you do in the memo? What idea did you have? Well, like some context for the memo. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, shortly before the memo, I was called into a meeting with my superiors and I was convinced they were going to make me president of Chemical Bank. I think I'd done a total of six months, and I was, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened. Exactly. Only to find out that wasn't exactly what they had in mind. And, you know, the meeting went something kind of like this. You're very smart. You're very talented. We're not sure this is the right industry for you. Mm. <laughs> you're capable, but you're not a culture fit, is what we say in today's parlance. I think that would be, yes, I, I was... But they said, and we don't know what to do with you. Mm -hmm. uh, so we suggest you start thinking about other industries. And in the meanwhile, why don't you go kind of, uh, my words, go sit in the corner and think about, you know, whether you want to be here or if you're going to be here, what you might be good at doing. Right. Um, and then, you know, I'd get out there and look for other places to work. Right. And a lot of people would have taken that and went right back to Albany. Right? Yeah. And, and yeah. It, you can go back to Albany either literally or metaphorically. Right, right. And I had never failed in anything in my life. And I was, I, I'd say, some ineffable combination of mortified, mm -hmm. angry, and inspired. And I said, okay, I'm going to try and figure this out, obviously. Right. As a, you know, there's a foot uh, Schumpeter who says, the economist uh, Joseph Schumpeter says, there are inventor innovators, there are entrepreneurs, and then there are managers. Yep. And they are rarely the same person. Yep. And so I always kind of never saw myself being in the management business per se, at least in an operating sense. Right. And um, when I'm sitting in the corner, I was sort of looking at, and this is right around 
uh, you know, we're looking at uh, this is 1979. Mm -hmm. You know, so after Black Monday, Black Thursday, whichever we decided it right, was, right. Um, and the interest rates had started to tick up significantly mm -hmm. in a way that we had never seen before. And I remember right. Walter Cronkite on the news, and I guess it was sometime in 1979, saying, "Today we've hit a new benchmark." Interest rates have now become double digits. The prime rate today went to ten percent, and that was tectonic. Right. Okay, because everybody thought you'd be borrowing money at four or five percent, and all of a sudden now the cost of money is twice as much. Right. And I believe prime rate tapped out at twenty-one and a half percent by nineteen eighty-two. Wow. And nothing worked. So none of the deals worked, and nobody knew what to do about it. And part of it was banks never had access to fixed rate funding. Right. And so I had this idea. It was the earliest days of the residential mortgage-backed security business. The, if you remember the days of Ginny Mae, yeah. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Yeah. And what Larry Fink now, who runs BlackRock, and a guy by the name of Lou Ranieri, who ran Solomon mm -hmm. Brothers, came up with this idea of separating prepayment risk because mm -hmm. of the volatility of interest rates. Yep. And there was no credit risk because it was all government-backed paper. So they separated the credit risk, uh, they separated the credit risk, the interest rate risk, and basically stripped it into two different securities. Wow. So they were basically selling government-guaranteed paper, and they were able to match the investor preferences for who wants the floating rate component, who wants, you know, who's going to take what risk. Who's going to take the risk. Now, I wasn't quite smart enough to even understand what they were doing at the time, but someone independently, um, I had, the day I walked into the bank, I was working on my first real estate deal, which is a whole, that's a whole separate episode. <laughs> it's, the famous story is uh, my first deal. Um, I had the money, my partner had the experience. When we were done, yeah. I had the experience, sure. and my partner had, had the, the money. money. <laughs> And uh, at least that happened early on. I, it was early on. <laughs> Timing I, is everything. But I discovered in doing this transaction, the, my partner said, I need you to get me a $100,000 letter of credit. I said, okay. Chuck, great. What's a letter of credit? I didn't, right. you know, I went to business school. We right. never discussed and letters of credit. Google didn't exist no at this Google. point. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I thought that was so interesting. The banks didn't have to put up the money. They could just use their credit. Right. And so the essence of this uh, memo was to not even consciously borrowing the residential mortgage-backed security business, but when you look at the commercial mortgage-backed security business, it's all credit risk and no prepayment risk. Got it. And so it was not even consciously looking at 180 degrees the opposite and said, why don't we guarantee loans instead of making them? Got it. And this okay. was before the accounting changed. And the, it was beyond, it was a little two-page memo that was like a knife going through hot butter and worked its way pretty high up in the bank. And what's remarkable was the bank's receptivity. They knew they had to do something different. Yeah. But to take a good banker and try and do this was not going to bear any fruit if you took sort of the misfit yep. that nobody knew what to make of. Right. Uh, and if they could just tame my arrogance, <laughs> uh, which happened along the way, because yeah. that's one thing you learn. Right. Um, if you're doing something as, and I'm going to use the word radical or epic change in the banking business, we're not going to make the loans anymore. Right. 
you know, we're going to arrange them and we're going to guarantee them, we're going to slice and dice them into securities. That's what this original memo was, not, not, not knowing where it could potentially go. Um, but when you realize the number of people who have to be on board, it probably, and the number of people who could stick a knife in your back without you ever even knowing it just because they don't like you and they don't like your personality. Right. And so I, when I look back, I say, you know what? I think it is a one in a million chance. It was just an anomaly that somehow I was able to maneuver. The timing was right. The dynamics were right. Um, but that's literally what led to you know the the, the earliest days of uh, the commercial mortgage-backed security market, which in today's world is you know we thought maybe one day it'd be twenty billion. It's now something like you know ten trillion. Which is unbelievable. Yeah. And so, but going back to the Schumpeter, it became a little bit. Mm -hmm. I don't want to use the word boring, but yeah. I did my part. Yeah. And I never, you know, it's funny because when you ask about all these different uh, uh, experiences or adventures or pathways, I never take on something unless I figure I can work myself out of a job. Right. So if you're there to, you know, entrench yourself, it's just so uninteresting to me. Right. But that's, I think, what's given me the, the emotional, intellectual, and uh, practical ability to not be in love with anything other than my children, my family, my dogs, um, and, you know, when the time is right, uh, pass the torch. Right. You're not, you're willing to say goodbye and keep moving, yeah. which is, is hard for people to do. Very hard. You know, you hear people in careers all the time where they're stuck and they're unhappy, and the truth is a lot of people don't have that courage to, to leave, and it's hard to take risks. It's very hard. It's very hard when you have a wife, kids, a family, a mortgage to take that kind of risk. And so the real question is, what are you going to do with that? Right. That's the real question. And in today's world, I guess you'd call it um, side gigs. Yes. But the number of people with full-time regular jobs who are working on some startup, yep. um, you know, maybe with a 26-year-old it's really, that's where the future is. It because is. the wisdom, and I'm, I'm involved in a situation just like that right now. Um, I don't know if you saw this uh, announcement in the Wall Street Journal about, about the startup called Lex. Yes, yes. So yes. tell us a little bit about it. Well, Lex. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so Lex, I guess, do I have time to give you the, you know, the we context? We do, yeah. Right, we yeah. have time. I'll tell you the story. You can edit out whatever you want. <laughs> so when I was, I had started the Disruptor Awards at Tribeca, out of my relationship with Clay Christensen mm -hmm. and um, my other partner in the innovation space, Erwin Kula, who's mm -hmm. an eighth-generation rabbi. And Clay, who's probably probably the most famous, or certainly one of the most famous Harvard professors of all time, uh, also happens to be an elder of the Mormon Church. Okay. And the rabbi <laughs> is a rabbi, and I'm a, you know, as I say, Six days a week, and this is metaphorically, <laughs> somewhere between atheist to agnostic. And on the seventh day, it depends on how the week went. Because <laughs> uh, a lot of stuff, I have every reason to believe there must be a higher source. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, when I started the awards, um, oh, wait, what topic were we on? We're talking about Lex and your oh, Lex, okay. the new announcement. So, okay, yeah, thanks. So um, one of our sponsors uh, at the awards was a company... Accenture, yeah. and I became very close to the CTO of Accenture, Paul Doherty, and he helped us build the awards. He got it. He was amazing. Uh, he was a risk taker, and 
so uh, I guess it was just about a year ago I got a call he said listen I know you're not really in day-to-day real estate anymore but you still you know you have your tentacles in through yeah. board representations and everything it's would like riding mind? a bike right yeah, you don't forget <laughs> he said would you mind meeting with my son and his friends they have a startup idea I just like to get your you know your reaction to it now I look at probably I don't know what it is 10,000 different ideas a year I mean yeah, and you have to how do you filter these right. and that, that's a whole separate conversation I said yeah I wasn't that interested and I said but Paul of course you know yeah. you know, we're, we're friends you've been a great supporter I'd be delighted and now one of the funny parts of the story is that I had learned about his son when his son was in 10th grade okay. because Paul is sort of you know an engineering type and so was his son and I guess the rest of the family and I'd heard the stories about the son, Jesse, who, when he was in 10th grade, was getting cease and desist letters from Wikipedia, from Amazon. Oh. So he was a real Yeah, computer. he was a real techie yeah, there. I, yeah, and, a hacker. Second, <laughs> and I said, anybody who's getting cease and desist letters in, in 10th grade, I want to meet. Now, right. you know, once again, don't let the facts get in the way. <laughs> uh, but that's sort of how I, I said, you know, I, I got to see what he's come up with. And I sat down, and they had actually tapped into something that was sort of a 2.0 or a 3.0 of the original memo, which is they wanted to take equity, I was really focused on debt, and slice it into securities, which people have tried, it's not a new concept, but their angle was under the Jobs Act, there were certain exemptions for non-accredited investors. Got it, okay. So with this concept of Lex is to acquire uh, minority positions, so you're mm-hmm. not triggering all the tax, you, you understand the yeah. tax consequences, yep. and you buy a slice and then you dice it up, and you can register each indi- individual security has a, a QCIP number, and the units can be as small as $100. Okay, so accessible. Accessible. Now, Which is a big deal right, in the investing world. Because there's now. a lot of people trying to do this, but their version of accessible is still 50,000 or 500,000. Right. The institutional market, unless it's 500 million, you can't even get right. their attention. And you know, there's an expression, the rich keep getting richer. Right. Well, one of the reasons is you block people from the good investment opportunities, right. of course. What the wealthy have is access in this country. Right. And, and expertise. That's an exper- and the ability to get expertise. Exactly. Which they called you in this. <laughs> and so I sat down. <laughs> Not expecting other than to say, yeah, you know, it's an interesting idea. And I said, listen, I can't poke any holes in this. I don't know why this doesn't work. Let me call a few of my friends and see if they find anything. And a few friends later, everybody, no, people would have comments about the market, the marketing. I said, but the concept is really powerful. It's opening up permanent capital in an industry that's starved for permanent capital. Um, and as you probably know, the, you know, the pendulum from public markets to private markets, I think I've seen 10 swings of the yes. pendulum. Yes. And right now, the public real estate markets are, I don't know how to use the word under siege, but many of the most, you know, the traditional legacy uh, category assets, office, retail, hotel, um, you know, even, even housing now, um, is basically, you know, they trade at discounts to their net asset value substantial discounts yeah. and you'd yeah. say can that, how long can that last right. so when you see these dislocations in the market um, a lot of it just happens by the evolution of the markets uh, changing investor preferences we now have ESG being a public company comes yes. with all kinds of 
uh, let's call it, additional responsibilities, complexities, administration. And I said, you know, these guys have really tapped into something. So I am not taking a full-time job, but I've agreed <laughs> to make myself so available. Very, very available. <laughs> and it's just so amazing working with these young 26- and 27-year-olds they're like sponges. Yeah. And um, but they but they love the experience that people have because that, that's yeah. what they do. They offer newness and exciting way to look at things, yeah. but they don't have the depth of experience. Yeah. And and the, it, the funny thing is, just having the experience is one thing. Being able to uh, I'm going to use a very strange word, narrativize, <laughs> tell stories. Tell. So when you see something and just say no, don't do that. It's different. Than, let me tell you a little story about why I believe this. And, you know, each little story, it's, a, you know, it's the Joseph Campbell, right. the hero's journey. The hero's journey. Let me tell you what I learned from this, because what, what you really want from me is not to tell you about the things that worked. What you really want from me is to tell you the things that didn't Did, work, yeah. because that's the real value. You know, in today's world, you know, so many things that I never thought would work have been wildly successful. So many things that I thought would be wildly successful didn't work. And, you know, listen, uh, Joe DiMaggio and Baby, you know, these guys were 300 hitters. They didn't right. bat 1,000. Right. They so failed the time, they, yeah. And unless, well, one thing, you know, was, uh, I think it was Reggie Jackson. I can't remember who said it, but no one ever hit, hit a home run taking a pitch. Yeah, this is true. Yeah, so, so unless you're willing to, you know, to fail. And, and I think the real question is either redefining failure mm -hmm. and it's not really failure. It's just, you know, it's the Thomas Jefferson, uh, Thomas Edison I learned a thousand things that didn't work. Yeah. And the other is to just embrace failure. And one of the, one of my bucket list, uh, uh, I guess, ideas, I can't even call it an idea, is I want to have a failure festival. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with Craig Hatkoff. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. If you are interested in the business of rental equipment, be sure to check out Rental Equip Talk Radio with host Donald Charbonnet. We talk to some of the top names in the rental industry, as well as cover topics that include safety, training, fleet management, legal issues, and more. We'll also cover the history and future of the rental equipment industry. Rental Equip Talk Radio can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to The Wealth Intersection with Megan Gorman. If you have a question or comment about the program, your money, or what it can do for you, please send an email to megan at thewealthintersection.com. That's M-E-G-A-N at thewealthintersection.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Wealth Intersection. We're here with Craig Hatkoff. And last when we spoke with him, he was talking to us about a new startup he was getting involved with. 
But I want to go back because you're interesting from a personal finance standpoint because you really are part of the FIRE movement because at 49, you decided you were done working in what you were doing. Yes, okay. And that's, but, but this is a big, you know, people are interested in how do you change careers midstream? How do you decide to walk away? How did you know? Um, well, first of all, let me give you context. You have to, in your own mind, there's sort of like what I'm going to call the wave-particle duality mm-hmm. between work and play. Mm-hmm. And if you don't enjoy what you're doing, you're probably, you might be good at it, but realistically, it's probably not where you should be in the long run. So the question is, do you have a conscious path to the next uh, iteration? Let's call this the quantum effect. You enough energy, you leap to the next level. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in between. Um, and for me, it was kind of organic. Okay. Um, it was just a moment where um, it was, I was at a company this is the company with Sam Zell, and uh, we were we had been through the pendulum swings mm-hmm. in the public markets, where the market loved our company. I think for 1997, uh, the company was called at the time Capital Trust. Uh-huh. We were the number one performing company on the New York Stock Exchange. Okay, so when you're on top, you've got to start thinking that. Right, but <laughs> there's also a big lesson there. Right, the on top was pretty much based on what I'll call the futures of an idea that Sam Zell was backing, but we hadn't really done all that much to validate it. And as it turns out, it was a mezzanine finance company, and we ultimately became the largest mezzanine finance, public uh, mezzanine finance company uh, dedicated to solely mezzanine finance. One of my mentors was a guy by the name of Steve Roth, who, from Vornado, and um, he always, was constantly saying, hoard your capital viciously. Hoard your capital viciously. Okay. okay. I like Keep that. Keep your powder dry. Okay. Okay. And this is a little bit of, you know, I've had the uh, privilege of being partners with uh, Jonathan Tish, the son, you know, son yeah. of Bob Tish of, you know, Bob and Larry, yep. who's famous, you know, best known for Cash is King. Yep. And so I kind of, now, that doesn't mean I'm going to, you know, take my own advice. Mm-hmm. But I also learned this expression from a guy who didn't become chairman of Chemical, but was sort of next in line, uh, Tom Johnson, who said, I don't mind taking risk. I just want to know what risk I'm taking. And then I'll price the risk, or I'll say it's too risky, I can't price it, but risk can be priced. And so I was always attracted to saying, well, what do you do when you can't price the risk, but you have a passion, a curiosity, and the world kind of needs something, Yes, that's that moment where don't bet everything, you know, try and do your, you know, your, your side hustle, your, you know, your, uh, your side gig. And that's what I started doing with children's books. That's how I kind of got into it. I was So you left life. finance and went right into children's books. Well, I, I left not knowing what I was going to do. I had already been working on some children's books. Okay. But the children's book side didn't really blossom until around 2005. Okay. Um, but I had done, uh, I guess, three children's books by that, you know, up till 2005, and then stumbled across something which turned out to be 
one of the flukes of all time in the from publishing. A tra- from a tragedy, though. From a tragedy. And so yeah. to me, so the fr- well, uh, let me use the, the early stages and you'll see how. So one of the books was uh, a little tree frog, the first one we did called Cesar's Amazing uh, Journey. A little tree frog appeared at a, uh, in a plant that had been shipped up from Florida at the Tribeca Film Center. And then, yeah. so I don't know who found it, but there's this tiny little frog, and what do you do with a tiny little frog? Right. So uh, my wife uh, sent it up to the Central Park Zoo, where they at least metaphorically released it into the rainforest. Okay. And I said, wow, that's a great, yeah. that's a great children's story. So we <laughs> did one, but it was inspired by a real story, but it was fictionalized and it was illustrated with you know, great, uh, we had a great uh, illustrator. Uh, and is the children's book world, I mean, because there's such iconic books that all children read, right? Like Good, New- Good Night Moon, yeah. right? The Winnie the Pooh series. Is it a hard area to break into with new stories? Almost impossible. Um, and, and I don't know currently, this is being very dated, but the number of submissions to what I'll call you know, top-tier publishers um, is something, you know, 5,000 a year, yeah. of which, like, equivalently, maybe 100 get published. Yeah. Okay. Of the 100 that get published... One or two not, make it. Yeah, well, <laughs> 90 will fail... You know, eight or nine will be okay, and then you'll have a Harry Potter. Right. Okay, so it's it's a hit-driven business, and there's lots of uh, business analyses. There's a great book by Anita Elberzee on, you know, hit-driven businesses, right. which I would recommend to your readers. It's yeah. really fascinating. So when you have hit-driven businesses, you know, it's great if you have the hit, and right. if you don't have the hit, uh, you're a starving artist. Right. So I think what happened, though, is... Um, we stumbled across something, and this is when I knew a little too much. By 2000, end of 2004, beginning of 2005, um, we had the Asian tsunami. I think it was December 26, 2004, yeah. and we were away on vacation. We got home. We had a stack of newspapers from being away, and we started. I was with my younger daughter, Isabella. I had done a couple of books with my older daughter, and I'll come back and finish that story. Um, but we're thumbing through the paper and all of a sudden we saw a picture of a giant tortoise snuggling with a baby hippo. Yeah. Yeah. And immediately we, we, we use something in the family that my daughters and I we've been doing this now for 50 years called the goosebump test. Mm. If we find a story that doesn't give us goosebumps we're not going to do the story if it gives us goosebumps or what we call the awe principle. Right. Because it has some element of awe, wonder and enchantment. Awe, wonder and enchantment. Okay. And then it becomes a story we're interested in. So we saw this picture. Um, I had done three books to this point and knew the economics, and you know it was not going to be a primary uh, income generator for the family. <laughs> but in fact, the question is, could you not lose money? Um, and and well, sometimes from tax purposes, the losses are valuable. Yeah, except you know, there's real losses, <laughs> and then there's depreciation and amortization yeah. and all the other. Those kind of losses. Yeah. These were cash losses. Yeah. <laughs> so, you felt them, yes. <laughs> so uh, we ended up, we sent a couple of emails over to Africa. That it had taken place in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And since I had done um, three books, two of which were e-books. Oh, and fairly early on. Very early on. And, you know, they were distributed non-traditionally. Um, and, you know, it was... And, Ironically, the story, no one knew how long this baby hippo and tortoise were going to be together. Right. As it turns out, in real real life, uh, the hippo's name 
is Owen, and the tortoise's name is Mize. Owen and Mize lived together in Kenya for two years. Aww. And it's one of the great interspecies, uh, I would call it like a love story. It's a friendship story. And having two, I mean, you could not have two more different, I mean, this was the odd couple. And they lived together for two years, um, and I didn't know, we just saw the one picture, and when I saw it, I, and I spoke to our friends over and I said, I'm sending you cameras, I'm sending you, I think, I don't even remember if it was filmed back then, it might have even been filmed, but probably not. <laughs> just keep taking pictures and shooting video footage, and don't stop. And then you wrote the story and around that. We wrote the story, but we launched it initially as an ebook on NBC's 5 o'clock news. Ah, okay. So I didn't even go to the publishers, because I kind of knew what that path was like. And I remember, it's another, you know, Adam Trebek, we had a very good relationship with uh, the head of WNBC. Yep. Uh, we'd done a lot together. We'd taken a lot of risks together with Tribeca. And his name was Frank Cumber Cumberford. And I said, Frank, I got this idea. And I rolled out these amazing pictures of this hippo and tortoise living together. And he looked at me and says, wow. And I said, I want to launch it as a, you know, on the five o'clock news yeah. during the festival. He said, well, is there a book? I said, not yet. He said, can you do a book? I said, yeah, not a problem. <laughs> so we put together a, an e-book using the pictures, and we launched it on the 5 o'clock news, and they had, you know, ironically, I don't know if it was hundreds of thousands of downloads, yeah. but, but a lot. I mean, you know, it was more, you know, if you sell a traditional children's title and you sell 10,000 copies, you're like a bestseller. Right. How many copies did this get downloaded? Well, Owen and Mize, the, the real book, which we ended up doing, mm -hmm. you know, it depends on how you count. This is not the right. most transparent <laughs> industry, and it's a little hard to cut, but all different versions, digital, print, educational, excerpts, et cetera, probably something like 10 million. Wow. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Now, that it's, is, yeah, the economics, because once yeah. you go into the, you know, what we'll call the, not the trade side, with the educational side, you don't get rich doing this, but right. still a lot of books. Right, and it's yeah. it's amazing to tell a story yeah, that gets heard, right? So many people write, and the stories don't get heard. This is amazing. Yeah, and it's used in, uh, normally, a story isn't considered for what I'll call the educational side of the business, you know, going to these big textbooks by mm -hmm. McGraw-Hill and Pearson and people like that. They wait until the story is 30 years or so, mm -hmm. A lot of our stories have been picked up much earlier, That's you know, great. after a couple of years. And they're all nonfiction. They're all picture books, which is part of the, I can't believe what I'm seeing. This can't, you know, this yeah. is, must be photoshopped in a world of fake news. And the answer is no. This is, this is real? Yeah. And so we've now done, in all, I think something like 15 books. Wow. Um, and a lot with your daughters. I have uh, all but the first one were done with either one or both of the girls. That's wonderful. And we have a family policy that you're automatically in unless you opt out of a story. <laughs> uh, because Owen and Mizay became, the first two books were with my older daughter. Um, and, you know, coming back to the topic of trauma, I got into this part um, by, I had a job to get done. My daughter had, her, had to have her tonsils out. Oh, and she was yeah. terrified. Yeah. You know, and all you can find out there <clears throat> on kids going to the hospital would be Madeline with her right. appendix. Right. Curious George swallows a puzzle yes, piece. Yes, he does. Uh huh. Okay. I had that book. <laughs> and then you have army manuals. You know, yeah. here's the scalpel. <laughs> here's this, you know, cold looking uh, operating room. 
and there was nothing in between. And so, because we had done that, Cesar's amazing journey actually uh, fell by the name of Michael Linton at the time was a penguin. Okay. And Michael then went on to run Columbia Studios. He's now chairman of uh, of Snap. He said, yeah, you know, I liked your first book. You know, well, let's give it a shot. So we did Goodbye Tonsils. Yes. Which was her diary um, oh. of what it, you know, step by step, what it means to go to the hospital and have your tonsils out. We had our first uh, creative crisis when I had to explain to Juliana that her drawings in the journal, which I still have to this day, weren't going to be used in the book. For the book, oh. oh. She was a, not a happy camper. <laughs> so that was my first. Artistic differences there. Yes. And, uh, you know, funnily enough, in Owen and Mazze, Isabella, who's my younger daughter, uh, and Juliana was, I think, f- five or six when we did Goodbye Tonsils, and when it was Isabella's turn to turn five or six, we ended up doing Owen and Mazze, and she said, Dad, I want to come to a meeting at Scholastic. At five? At five. Okay. You know, why do you go to all these meetings right. and you're not including me? Right. And I said, okay, so you'll, you'll, you'll come to the business mm-hmm. meeting. And she said, fine, I'm coming to the business meeting. So we get there, and we're, you know, we're sitting at this kind of like little play table, at least metaphorically, and we've got you know, four of the heavyweights from Scholastic, and they said, yeah, they, they knew enough to include Isabel, but said, here's some markers, and here's some drawing paper, you know, like you go into right. a French uh, restaurant, uh, restaurant and, and, like, you, yeah. and you crans it. They said, you know, you want to draw us a picture of Owen and Mize? So we're sitting there, and she, one take, does this one drawing of Owen and Mize, and everybody looks at each other and said, we got oh my it. God. <laughs> and so in it's basically the logo for almost everything we do. Aww. And it became a thing where on the cover, the inside cover of every book, she'll do a drawing of whatever the animal is. Aww. And to watch her, you know, her artistic talents expand from six years old to I guess what, four years ago, to sort of like a fifteen year old when she did we did Cecil the Lion. Okay. Uh, which you know was a big story, the dentist who shot uh, oh. The lion with the bow and arrow, but our story wasn't about the death of Cecil. Our story was about the life of Cecil, and nice. the real story um, of Cecil um, is better than the Lion King, and it's true. Let, let's talk about something that happened before the books, mm-hmm. which is in two thousand one. So you had just left finance, you were getting into the book, book publishing, and nine eleven happened. And you and your wife realized there were a lot of restaurants down in Lower Manhattan struggling. And she were, your wife works with... Bob De Niro. Robert De Niro. And so how did you get to be a founder of the Tribeca Film Festival? Because you are in film. You were a real estate guy and a finance guy. Yes. But... With, with you know... With, with a lot of interest. With, with a lot of interest <laughs> and creative impulses. Let's okay. call them impulses. Uh, I think, and, and actually, I had known Bob De Niro mm-hmm. uh, since 1978 because he was always interested in real estate. And I was in the you know day-to-day real estate business, yeah. and we were connected through my first real estate partner. Remember the one who uh, who ended up with the, <laughs> the money, money, and you got the experience. Yes, but Bob and I both had a you know had a soft spot in our heart for <laughs> uh, our, our connector. Um, but um, when we went down after September 11th, everybody said, "What well, you know, if you remember some of the stories, people would go stand outside the, you know, the, the Red Cross for five hours to donate blood. They'd give their blood and then find out they had to throw out the blood. Yeah. There was no way to, you know, take that. And so, um, we, uh, you know, you know, we were having the cup, what can we do? And I said, you know what, let's just, 
we'll know it when we see it. Mm-hmm. We'll find an opportunity, but don't just rush out. You know, we, and, and everybody just wanted to do something. It was that moment. Mm-hmm. And um, we ended up, uh, it was somewhere mid-October, so this is three weeks afterwards. Yes. Uh, and it was still a war zone. Uh, my wife Jane said, let's, we should go down and support the restaurants in Little Italy, uh, Chinatown, and the financial district. They're all going out of business. Right. So we said, okay. So we took uh, my older daughter and my nephew and uh, his fiance at the time, and we went down. Uh, I think it was, I'm sure I know it was Little Italy, and you got to Little Italy, and let's say there are 40 or 50 restaurants. The staff of every restaurant was standing on the stoop looking for customers. Uh. And we yeah. were one of two parties having dinner downtown. Right. And there's only so many times you can have dinner to try to help. Right. So, so the idea... Yeah, so but the, it stimulates the idea. Well, so the idea just more... And it was a tearful dinner. I mean, yeah. you said, we're losing all this. You know, yeah. Chinatown, gone. Little Italy, gone. Uh, financial District, you know, all those famous old, you know, since the beginning of the Federal Reserve in the 1700s, right. metaphorically. Um and the idea just kind of emerged, why don't we'll do a good old-fashioned campaign? Now, they have to understand, back in 2001, most people didn't even have AOL back then. No. Mm. So it was sort of a fax campaign, and, you know, those who did have AOL. So I still have all the faxes <laughs> that uh, we sent out a couple of notices Invite 10 friends and have your 10 friends invite 10 friends. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, this is what we call in, in our innovation theory, the theory of loose or weak ties. Okay. I didn't have to know all of them, but it's network theory. Okay. So if I invite 10, that's 10 people, but if I invite 10 who invite 10, yes. roughly, it's 100. It's not exactly 100, but it's roughly right. 99 you know, people will be there. And if they invite another 10 uh, you're going to be, you know, it's a, it's an exponential function. And so we ended up doing a series of uh, three or four dinners, I can't remember exactly, um, where about a thousand people all descended on, you know, we, we had signed up, I think it was like 35 restaurants. We organized it so we'd send a party, you know, 20 or 30 people yeah. to each one of the restaurants. Uh, Bob De Niro showed up at every single restaurant, which, you know, back then was, you know, and Bob's great at that stuff yeah. like that. And yeah. It's amazing. And, you know, when Bob is showing up at restaurants, it becomes a press event. The next thing right. you know, Bill Clinton's there, Queen Noor's there. Right. Everybody started to have, and by the third dinner, I think, it was pretty clear to me that it was. this was a powerful way of getting it. But I remember it was, uh, November, I think it was November, Uh, Jane came home one day and said, uh, Bob and I want to start a film festival. We've always thought about doing a film festival, but we want to do it now. Now, I knew what it took to do Dinner Downtown, which is sending out a bunch of faxes to existing restaurants. I know nothing about the film festival business, and candidly, neither did they, other than they went to Cannes, because Bob was in all these movies. Right. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, the business of running a film festival. But I also knew... Uh, when Bob and Jane had an idea, there aren't enough words in the English language to talk them out of it. Right. So I just said, okay, this is crazy. But I did ask the question, what year are you thinking of doing this? <laughs> and what did they say? <laughs> what was their year? Well, the answer was, uh, there's only one window because we have to get films, right. and it's this coming April. Now, this is 
November, maybe early December. Right. And this is, and like it's about to be Christmas and everybody's taking off. Right. And it's and a I, huge event and you have to get submissions and work with, you know, all the, the film studios and the actors who are promoting. And, yeah. and so I said, this is the craziest thing. If someone had ever presented a business plan, you'd tell yeah. them they're nuts. Yeah. But when there's a will, there's a way. Right. And we announced it with the governor, uh, you know, Meryl Streep, Marty Scorsese, Whoopi Goldberg, that we're having a film festival. The question was, do you have any films? No. Do you have any sponsors? No. Do you have any venues? <laughs> no. And uh, the, our, our real champion was uh, a guy by the name of Charlie Gargano, who was the head of Empire State Development Corporation. And I said, you know, I answered those questions. You know, do you have films? No. Do you have yeah. And he said, sounds great to us. What do you want? <laughs> When 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 do you want me to have the governor there for the press release? Right, right. And so I'm like, whoa, we're gonna have to really do this now. And so then we all went on Christmas vacation, and now it's January, and we have ninety days to put together, one hundred twenty days to put together a film festival. Right. And uh, and that first festival had some big films at. I mean, the Avengers, right? Was there? Was it about a boy? No, the, about a boy about was a boy? the opening film, yeah. and you know, this was Jane's curatorial programming sense is that what we didn't need was a, you know, we needed an uplifting comedy. Yeah. And I just remember uh, the opening, you know, opening ceremony was down at uh, uh, City Hall with uh, Mayor Bloomberg. Yeah. Bill Clinton's there, and then uh, Clinton had invited Nelson Mandela to mm. come be our grand patron. And actually, Bob and Jane, because Mandela had come to... Uh, uh, the film center back in 94 just you know when he had gotten out of prison right. so there was a strong connection and he was a huge film buff in fact he would play in his mind all the films he had seen while he was incarcerated for 27 years wow and so you know sitting there and all of a sudden the sun came out and we've got Hugh Grant and Bill Clinton <laughs> and Mayor Bloomberg and Whoopi and you know Francis Red and I said yeah, this this is could you know could work now yeah. We it, it's it's not an easy business. Yeah. It it got willed into existence. Yeah. Um, and this is one of those things where you say, don't try this at home. Right. Um, we were. It was a set of <clears throat> circumstances and dynamics that made this succeed. Yeah. We were born out of a tragedy, but now it's you have to always remember and commemorate, but you have to move forward and celebrate. Yeah. So the Tribeca Film Festival was. Um, born out of those two sentiments uh, respect and commemoration but also this is the new beginning yeah and, and it's amazing how much it's grown and how much money it's put into New York City yeah and it became you know almost you know they call it an instant institution yeah. um, and um, you know it's been you know 18 years and you know it was intended to be a one-year gig yep. our first projection was to have 10,000 people uh, by the time the first festival was over, um, I remember I was the, the counter. That was my <laughs> I counted napkins. I counted stores. I knew we had. Well, you were sponsors. finance guy, right? And I said, <laughs> what are we selling people? You know, it's a dream, but you know, you got to show them something. And the, I remember uh, at the closing ceremony, I got I got to announce what the attendance was. I said, you know, I know this is hard to believe. We had 150,000 people at this little festival. Unbelievable. But American Express had stepped in and said. We have a three-year program for any of these new events. It's called Crawl, Walk, Run. Okay. And so we're going to come on board 
but it's a three-year deal. Right, so you better <laughs> like, be running by the end of year three. Well, and I was like, you mean I got to do this? Well, it goes yeah. back to Sam Zell. Three years? <laughs> How about we start with one? Is and it, you're still pretty involved. Uh, well, a little bit less so in the yeah. last couple of months because James Murdoch, uh, who is, you know, called the liberal side of the Murdoch family. Yes. For those of you watching <laughs> Succession and... Uh, 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 has just bought you know bought control of Tribeca, and I'm it's after 18 years, it's once again time for me to go to do something new, and I'm taking all the innovation uh, activities, the awards, the disruptor awards will come with me, and I'm going to find a new home for it, and you know already pretty advanced in a lot of discussions. That might be a great way to end this because this has been I mean amazing talking to you, but you've had such a fascinating career with disruption. And well, I'm excited to hear what will happen next. Uh, the answer is we don't know, but we're going with the flow, and that's Excellent. our story, and we're sticking with it. Excellent. So, Craig, tell people where they can find you on Twitter and Instagram, because uh, you do have a pretty good Instagram feed. Yeah, the Instagram feed, it's at chatkoff. Um, but probably the best place to get a flavor for the awards, and it's not the easiest site to navigate because there's just so much content. We've had about 250 honorees. We have 400 fellows, but if you go to www.disruptorawards.com, you'll get a flavor for it. Um, and then just, I guess, general Googling Craig Hatkoff, um, you know, you can put in books, you can put in music. Tribeca Film Festival. Tribeca Film Festival. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I, it's, 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 as you can tell, it's not an easy when someone says, so what is it that you do? Right, right. But that's, I think, what careers are about now anyway. Yeah, and you have to have, a, you know, ultimately, and this is having spent 20 years with my best friends as an eighth generation rabbi, yeah. <laughs> uh, we are, but, you know, I'm a very productive speck of dust in the greater scheme of thing, things. And, uh, you know, you want to be humble? You know, take a look at the galaxy. Take, you know, take a look into an electron microscope and realize it's the very, very small to the very, very large. And that we're all part of that journey. And uh, if, you know, if you can't find your purpose, just make sure you leave the doors open so the purpose can find you. I love that. On that note, thank you, Craig, for joining us. It's my pleasure. I'm Megan Gorman. You can feel free to reach me at www.thewealthintersection.com and on Twitter at Wealth Intersect. This has been an episode of The Wealth Intersection, and until next time, thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to The Wealth Intersection. Megan Gorman will be back with another program next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then.